From the studios of Teeing It Up in the Samsa, Jersey, this is Teeing It Up with Jeremy Schilling for Monday, May 15th, the year 2017. It's 66 degrees on this evening, this Monday evening, under clear skies, and we welcome in to talk about the Players' Championship, a man who is at the Players' Championship, our buddy who just graduated from Florida State. Congratulations on that, Mr. Sean Davison. Hello, sir. How's it going, Jeremy? Thank you very much. See, got a master's degree. Not sure what I'm going to do with it, but so is life in the post grad world, right? There you go. Um, Siwoo Kim. I think for those of us who follow the sport, we've heard the name. Um, he won at uh, Greensboro last year. He is a part of this wave. Siwoo Kim, Sung Kang, Sang Moon Bay, uh, BH On, CT Pan. I mean, there's about six or seven of these guys in this wave, and this is even the post-Hideki, post-Ishikawa, uh, um, post-KJ Choi wave, this new wave. They're all around the same age of guys um, who either played well in college, played well overseas, are now here. Um, obviously, B.A. John's done a bunch of things overseas on the European Tour, um, winning their flagship event. But I think a lot of people who don't watch Greensboro because it is a you know post PGA Championship event and and the last regular season event uh, before the playoffs may not have realized that he won that event. That event had some rain issues, so here he is. He ends up on a weekend leaderboard with JB Holmes, Louis Ustazen, and Kyle Stanley. You were there. Those conditions were not easy, and his short game basically saved him, and he basically grinded out the title. No, there really wasn't much of a sign of nerves. There wasn't much of a sign of, of him crumbling at all, and you don't typically see that. You know, I, we've talked time and time again after these majors about guys who found their way onto the leaderboard after Saturday for the first time, and they didn't have the Sunday they would have wanted, and that's part of learning how to win those kind of titles. For as long as I've been around, the players has always been dubbed unofficially as golf's fifth major, and in many ways because some guys, whether it's health issues or travel issues, might not play one of the four majors, a lot of players somehow find a way to play at TPC, and roughly, it generally does have the best field of the season. Just about everybody will make their way to Sawgrass to play in that tournament. So he played against a loaded field and a golf course that had some really nice renovations. I'm a fan of them. There's some things that I'd like to see them continue to do, maybe a few more tweaks, but a really great golf course that I have loved going to for a long time, and some really tough, hot humid. You expect that in Florida conditions. It was windy. The course was dry, so it made it even trickier. And, and he really did prevail. He, he held his own, and it was a really impressive performance by, uh, by the young men. Um, it was, I believe, a lackluster players. Not lackluster in the sense of blah, of, of, well, it, it, it was kind of blah. It, it just didn't have excitement. And, and I don't know if this is first year firm, with the Greens, I don't know if this is the fact that some big names had some weird weeks. I mean, look, what Siwoo Kim did on the back nine um, with those ups and downs seemingly at every hole was, was was very impressive golf. It just did not light it up on on TV. I'm sure it wasn't, you know, oh my God, you know, this is Ricky Fowler crazy in person. And it didn't light up the ratings because it's now 14 straight final rounds in the PGA Tour that have fallen, and that includes the Masters um, uh, versus last year. Um, so it's been kind of weird in that sense and kind of odd, this, this, that vibe of the weekend. Um, 
But you got to hand it to the guy. He played well. Um, right. you, you know, there's somebody in Ian Poulter who's playing basically to secure his card for five years and not have to go through the crap. He, he, um, he just went through thinking he lost his card. Uh, you know, it's a big event that, that normally produces big finishes, and this one just seemed to lack a little oomph. No, you're absolutely right. And you and I, we were communicating back and forth over that final stretch. And, you know, he had that couple of shot lead going into 17. And whether it's been Sergio, whether it was Sean O'Hare, whether it was Jeff Maggard the same year that Sergio went in the water when Maggard got himself into a tie for the lead, people forget that the year that Tiger Woods won the tournament. Um, you just sort of, as, as sad as it is, you come to expect for calamity to happen over those last few holes whether it's David Tom hitting it in the water at 16, whether it's Sergio dunking a few at 17, whether it's Adam Scott flirting with disaster at 18. It just happened. But he, it did not happen for him. And that's the kind of stuff, you know, as tough as it is to watch certain players struggle down the stretch, that's the stuff that's going to peak interest in a way. And that just didn't happen. And, you know, again, credit to him. Uh, unfortunately, this golf course with the renovations, there was a lot of talk about, well, with the renovations to 12 and you know, with 11 being a reachable par 5, now you got a reachable par 4 and you got the tricky par 3. This could be a really exciting stretch of golf all the way from the 11th until the 18th because 14 and 15, if you will, are the hang-on-tight, buckle-up-tight, you're-going-for-a-ride kind of holes where you have to sort of stay the course and make sure that you don't make any big numbers. But... It just didn't quite deliver. He was able to par through all the way, and he wasn't threatened at all. He wasn't pushed that much at all. Whether it was Kyle Stanley who couldn't get a putt to fall, whether it was Poulter who couldn't get him a fall at the right time, he just seemed pretty safe once he made the turn. And, you know, when you're a young player and you're in that spot, sometimes you can be your own worst enemy. And he wasn't. And that's a credit to him, that's a credit to his caddy, that's a credit to his entire camp. And that's a big win for him moving forward. And he's just a young guy, so this could be the first of many big-time wins for him to come. Um, let's talk about 12. I thought, well, let's put 12 in context. 12 is a brand-new hole. It's going to be firm and, and fast first-year greens no matter what. Um, the mistake that I thought the tour staff made this week is that they had the course way too firm and fast. I thought that if you're going to deal with first-year firm, make it, you know, put some water on it. Make it a little green. Let it not bake out, let it, let it, um, you know, let it calm down, um, you know, make it more playable. I thought that they basically took a setup that'll work great in 2020 or 2019 or 2022, and they tried it for 2017, and it may have been too much too soon. I have an architectural issue with this 12th hole, which we'll get to in a second, but just in general on setup, uh, what's your take on if they pushed it too far uh, 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 too far with first-year greens? No, I will absolutely agree with you in the, in the respect that when I got there, the course was a lot browner than I thought it would be. It wasn't Pinehurst brown, but it did seem harder, drier, and just faster than it was. The thing that struck me, because I, I walk around the course a few times, and then I'll pick a few holes and sit there and watch a little bit. The thing that struck me for, you know, watching the early coverage was noticing that players could not fly their approach into the 16th green more than about a third into that green without it bounding through the green and perhaps into the water. I mean, granted, they are coming in with, say, a 4-iron or a 5-iron or, you know, a hybrid club, something like that, if they're going for it in two. But I can't tell you how many times, because I lost count of how many players that we watched 
hit the ball into the green, get a big hop, and it just get it through and over the back and into the water. And the next thing you know, they're trying to get up and down for par. There's some people who like that. Myself, not so much. 12 in particular, I think we'll, we'll touch more on the architectural aspect of it. Um, but again, I think to your point, there was a lot they were trying to do with that course, and I think they were trying to get way too far ahead of themselves. They're being a little overly ambitious about what this course can become because there's some great stuff out there that can really make this tournament very interesting in the years to come. But I think they tried to push down both a little too bit too soon. Um, all right. Well, we're talking with Sean Davidson here. Uh, uh, Sean Davidson here, obviously, about the players. Let's go back. Uh, now to number 12, brand new hole, drivable par 4. Pete Dye isn't a fan of those. He had to be talked into it. He eventually signed off on it. Um, the tour saw input from a lot of people. Here's the difference. Here's where I think things went wrong. Uh, as you may remember, on the first day the, the poll was open, Tommy Roy, Roger Maltby, and Gary Cook played it in a group. And Gary chipped in for eagle. He made what the tour believed was the first eagle on number 12. Tommy Roy played it with Jay Monahan and Tim Fincham about two weeks before the event. And a bunch of players who lived there, who had played there in the run-up, they all said the same thing, which is the grass to the left on the slope by the water was not shaved down. And when you shave it down like that, and Frank Nabilo's tee to green displayed it perfectly, when you shave it, you take all the impetus and all the, the incentive, in my mind, out to drive that green because the penalty was so severe if you hit it left of the slope or either on, on the left part of the green with topspin, and that hole still had the uh, mid-iron layup set up nicely, that was clearly the better option, and we saw a whole bunch of the field the first three days do that. I don't have a problem with the whole setup, architecturally. Um, maybe you push the water a little bit and give the guys some more room up there uh, to maneuver it. But I do think, because um, uh, look at 17, for example. 17 at, at, at um, Scottsdale. Yeah, the water's left. Ricky Fowler, you know, can tell you all about that uh, from last year. But it's not that bad. There, there's no steep bank that's shaved over there. If you if you get one, you know, going at, at semi-normal speed or pull it, you know, not too egregiously. And there's a whole bunch of room to the right where hitting it down there has a big advantage. Um, some talked about 12 at, uh, sorry, 10 at uh, Riviera where it is a distinct disadvantage to layup, that the shot link stats since 04 have shown that the guys who go for it and end up somewhere around there make a better score than guys who try to lay up. I just felt that the incentive for trying to drive it was taken away by the slope left of the water, and that was ultimately a mistake. No, and I'll take it one step further from that. The penalty for going for it was too large, and the benefit of laying back was too large as well. They moved the bunker, and, you know, right where you hit that iron off the tee to set up a nice full wedge or a full nine iron, whatever it is that you prefer to hit into those kinds of greens, it was wide open. You know, you're, you're asking tour professionals who do this for a living around the world if they want to try to drive a green where if they pull it just by the slightest amount, 
they're going to be in the water dropping free, or to lay back down the fairway and have a full wedge in their hand that they would ordinarily expect to get within 5 to 10 feet every single time. It's the choice is easy. The choice is absolutely easy. So architecturally, what I would like to see is whether it's a creek, whether they expand the bunker, whether they pinch that fairway, whatever it is they have to do, make that layup tougher. I think uh, Nick Faldo said this on the air. That layup has to be a tough decision. You have to give them that incentive to go. And whether that is making the layup tougher to pull off or whether it's making the risk of driving it less or maybe it's a little bit of both, that incentive has to be there. And it really was. I watched quite a few groups play 12, and I think I saw maybe two or three players. Granted, I wasn't there all day, but in the large amount of groups that I saw, maybe two or three players legitimately give it a crack. So, I mean, it was way too easy a decision for them to lay back and take a full wedge in there or to either hit it well out to the right and try to make a chip. I mean, it, it, there's some stuff that needs to be done to that hole, but I like the idea behind it. Don't get me wrong. Um, and I, I think, too, they got to fix over the green. Over the green was way too much of a penalty down. That's also part of first-year firmness. But that over-the-green pitch shot, especially to a back pin, was really devilish. No, it, it absolutely was. And for the first part of the week, too, the first part of the weekend, I was following the Ben Martin-Paul Casey group. And Ben Martin absolutely played it perfectly, bouncing it into the upslope and sort of letting it trundle down toward the hole and scrub off speed as it did. He ended up making a three there, I believe. But, I mean, aside from that, you know, that's how you had to play that ball, that hole. And to that point... Paul Casey ended up chipping across the green into the water from, I believe, almost a similar location. So, you, you know, exactly. The risk of going for the green can't be so large that the pros decide not to go for it if you want to market it as a drivable par four or a risk-reward. If it's all risk, then you're not going to see anybody take the chance unless they find themselves down to on Sunday needing to make something happen. But even then, it's too early in the round with too many more opportunities behind it for them to even really give it that much consideration. Or at least if I was in that position, I wouldn't even give it that much consideration because you can lose a tournament in that moment more so than winning it. So, again, there's some tweaks they have to make to the hole. But I do, again, in general, like the direction they're headed. And I think that that's something that whether it's Pete Dye or the Tour or a combination of the two will look at and they'll try to adjust in the years to come. Why do you think so many big names did not play well? This is a weird event for top players in the world who either got stuck in neutral or just flat out missed the cut like Jordan Spieth. Well, we'll start with Jordan. Aside from being in contention pretty much the first year he played, for whatever reason, he's got himself either convinced or he just, I don't know what it is. When he plays that course, he just does not play well. There's the terminology horses for courses, and for some reason, that's just not him at CPC Sawgrass. Just hasn't been. Jason Day, you know, with the personal stuff with his mom and just the emotional roller coaster ride that it's been this year, finally getting himself back, um, you know, it, it might be one of those things where he's still trying to readjust to tournament golf and being 100% invested in what he's doing. Now, I'm sure he would say that he is 100% invested, but, you know, it, it still is an adjustment to go from focusing on something that's so much bigger than the game to paying so much attention to all the little intricacies that you have to pay attention to every split second during a round. 
beyond that, Rory McIlroy, as Mike Tirico said on their broadcast coverage this past week, did decide to go ahead and play the weekend, but it, actually it was today he had an MRI done on his back, and his back was still getting an issue. So you've got McIlroy playing hurt, you've got Day coming off of the cancer scare and the cancer um, the issues with his mom, and then you've got Jordan, who just typically doesn't play there well, and then Phil, who just does Phil things, and will shoot four under one day and then four over the next. And, and those are the big names that, you know, without singling out anybody, really do steer the ship now in the absence of Tiger. People still care about Phil. People want to see Jordan play well. Ricky Fowler had his good moments. He had his bad moments. And that's also been kind of what his career has been like. There's really no rhyme or reason. You'll see him miss the cut one week, then you'll see him finish T5 or T6 the next. You know, he, he's got a lot of potential, and he's trying to rein it in for consistent stretches. Um, and, and he'll get there, but, you know, again, we're talking about young players as well. But, you know, you had Ricky Fowler who didn't have his best week just in general. You had Bill Mickelson who was erratic at times, which we've seen out of him before. Jason Day coming off the cancer deal. You had Rory McIlroy with the hurt back. You had Jordan Spieth who just typically hasn't played TPC well. And those are the big names that people are tuning in to watch. That was Sergio's first tournament back, I believe, since winning the Masters. Yeah. He's coming back to play tournament golf. And, you know, it, that's just sort of the way it shook out. And some players that have been grinding it out and playing pretty decently all season long found themselves with an opportunity, and Siwoo Kim made the most of it. Um, let's let's go through a couple other things that have happened in, in, in golf uh, since we last spoke. Wesley Bryan winning the Heritage. Uh, look, I mean, th- this is a dude who's, who is used to be known for a trick shot artist. Now he's got Jim Nance cringing because he threw up in his mouth on the 17th D and was... Brutally honest in the booth. If there's anybody, if there's any single figure in golf that I think can bring some people in if he keeps on winning and playing well in big spots, I think it's it's Wesley. The guy just has an infectious personality. No, I, I, I spent a little bit of time. Uh, I, I, I spent a lot of time, actually. I'm going to take that back. Around the driving ranges, I've told you time and time again, yeah. I love to just watch them swing and see who's making pure contact with the ball. See, you know, the different motions and the different, you know, angles and whatnot that, that these guys take with their swings and whatnot. And I wasn't necessarily paying too, too much attention to Wesley Bryan, but it just sort of worked out that he was near where I was on the range in Tampa. And he was talking to fans. He was talking to whether it was members of the media, caddies, other players. He's just that kind of guy. And congeniality goes a long way out on the PGA Tour, especially in a tour that dare I say, is trying to find itself and trying to find some names that'll draw people in and, you know, make people want to watch without Tiger Woods being around. And granted, I'm not saying Wesley Bryan is the next Tiger Woods, but guys like that, good guys that people can relate to, that enjoy watching, that understand, that are down home, that just are relatable to a capital R. That's what will help steer the ship for the PGA Tour and what is quickly appearing with all these injury issues with Tiger Woods to be a post-Tiger era. Again, I don't want to speculate on Tiger, but again, these are the kinds of things that will help the tour take that next step forward when inevitably it will have to when Tiger decides that Tiger is done. So yes, in that regard, he has a great personality, and he has such a good game, too. I mean, he's been finishing top five, top ten pretty consistently up until that win and finally knocked the door down. Talking to uh, Sean Davidson here on on, uh, on 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 teeing it up. What did you think of the Zurich format? If you got to see any of it, um, team format, 
uh, um, obviously ended up with one of the shots of the year with Kevin Kisner's uh, pitch for Eagle to send us to Monday, but what did you think? Now, I, I actually liked it. I didn't get to see a whole lot of it, but part of the topsy-turvy nature that we see at the Shark Shootout that we like is, you know, you get some big names in there, but it might be Jerry Kelly and Steve Stricker that end up putting it together well. The guys who can, you know, the guys who have the good wedge player and then somebody who can clean it up and make a good putt right after that, especially an alternate shot, that shoot those low scores and find themselves in position to win. And now we saw that for actual FedEx Cup points and for actual two-year exemption and for an actual PGA Tour regular season title, an official win, per se. And there were some guys out there, whether it was Chase Kepka or Cameron Smith, that had a whole lot to gain this week, but they might not ordinarily have as many of those opportunities as they did. Cameron Smith, Jonas Blix, making the most of that opportunity. I think the shame was that after that great shot by Kevin Kisner, I always hate to see tournaments have to go to Monday. And especially this one, that it was so close that it couldn't have finished on Sunday when tournaments so typically do. So you sort of hit that climax, and everybody had to go home and then come back and play Monday morning. Um, but aside from that, I like the format. I really did. The players seemed to like it. They liked the course. And it's something that in moderation, which I don't hear anything about there being another tournament similar to this outside of the Zurich or the Shark Shootout, which is a silly season event after the, uh, the break for the calendar year. And I think in moderation, this is a great format. It's a great way to change things up. It's the push right between the Masters and the players, and the U.S. Opens right after the players. Um, so it's a nice break in the actions the players seem to enjoy and the fans seem to enjoy as well. Kevin Chappell got his first win in San Antonio. This is this seemed just very, very overdue for a guy who had uh, um, who had earned his his stripes. Um, which brings up an interesting point, which is: Are we ending? Are are we entering an era where there's going to be a lot of guys, guys like Kevin Chappell, who are talented, but it took them a lot of breakthrough, where they end up with one, two, three career wins, um, and. Those will be nice careers, and they'll make several million dollars and, and be nice, but just golf is too deep to have six, seven, eight, nine, ten win careers. Look at somebody like Zach Johnson, who hasn't won since his Open title, um, which is obviously only two years ago, but guys like him and Matt Kuchar, who have had these droughts, it's it, it's a bit surprising. No, it absolutely is, but at the same time, you can sort of count on Matt Kuchar to put together a double-digit top ten kind of year the way he always has. But again, yeah, it's been a while since he's won. It's been a while since Zach Johnson's won. And I don't want to say that this is the end of Zach Johnson's career because he's much too talented for that. His wedge game is way too sharp. And I think in a lot of ways he's still trying to figure out that transition from Titleist to PXG. Anytime you make a major equipment change, you have to make that adjustment. But regardless, you know, Zach's already felt, in my opinion, after he won that Open Championship, you win two majors and one's at Augusta, one's at St. Andrews, and you win double-digit tour events outside of that. You've got yourself a Hall of Fame career. We will be seeing Zach Johnson inducted into the Hall of Fame at some point over the coming years. Matt Kuchar, uh, he doesn't have that major championship title, so I'm not going to speculate as to whether or not he'll be a Hall of Fame player. You know, you could look at President's Cup and Ryder Cup formats, and if he becomes a captain and becomes a really good one, a la Colin Montgomery, you know, you might see something like that. Um, but I think I just hopped on the tangent train, and, you know, what you said has a lot of merit to it. We might see a lot of guys that win three, four, five PGA Tour events, and that's all they win for their career. I mean, you look at how long it's been, heck, for Brooks Kepka, a young 20-something-year-old American who belted an absolute mile, who contended in San Antonio, who contended last year at the Byron Nelson, lost in a playoff there, was one short of a playoff with Kevin Chappell at San Antonio, 
And, I mean, it's been that tough for him to get back into the winner's circle. And this is a guy that a lot of people think could be one of the next bright, young Americans in this speed era. And he hasn't gotten back there yet. So in that regard, too, I guess the next critical question or the next thing to ponder when you think about how this could be an era where you see a bunch of guys win maybe five or six times and that's about it, is now you've got a lot more respect for the guys who found a way to win 10 or 15 or 20 because there's going to be a lot fewer of them. And when you're trying to find the best of the best who build those Hall of Fame careers, and again, without singling out any certain accomplishment, it usually roughly falls around, what, 15 tour wins and about one or two majors somewhere in there? When you find guys who actually have been able to accomplish that sort of resume, especially in a time like this, you really will see the best of the best. So in a grand scheme of things, it might not be the worst thing for the PGA Tour to have a bunch of guys who win a couple of tournaments. Finally, it's Aaron Hill's time in a couple of weeks. We get to go to the U.S. Open at another brand new venue, another Lynx-like venue. I, I talked to Shane Bacon on this podcast a couple weeks ago who's been there, um, says it's going to be fascinating, doesn't think it'll have the Chambers Bay issues. Um, it's, it's one big unknown, Sean. No, it really is. And, and, you know, you were talking about it being a length venue, and the first thing that came to mind was, will it be like Chambers Bay, where it wasn't necessarily super well received? And, you know, to hear that from somebody who's seen the venue and played it and been around it, who thinks it'll be fascinating, who doesn't think that there will be the same sort of issues, that's great. I also think, to a certain extent, the fact that it is such a fascinating storyline, that it's a fascinating concept, that it's a course that we haven't seen before. You mentioned the ratings that have been down pretty, you know, traditionally. You know, it, with that new venue, if you get some of those star players on the leaderboard moving forward, that alone will help. And I think the intrigue of it being a new venue and it being a Lake-style course might add to it as well. It could be the perfect mix for a great weekend for the PGA Tour and for golf in general that's had some pretty tough weekends lately. Sean Davison, um, next time you're on, we'll talk college stuff because I know there's a lot of college stuff you want to get to, and uh, we'll do that on your next appearance on this podcast. But thanks for coming on to talk the players and other things golf-related. Hey, sounds good, Jeremy. College World Series, Women's College World Series, both should be a lot of fun coming up in the next month. Yep, those will be on the networks of ESPN. That's Sean Davison. Uh, We thank you for listening to Teeing It Up, and we'll see you next week. Thanks, everybody. Take care.